My name is Ali Ansari. I'm Professor of Iranian History at the University of St. Andrews. My interests are in the modern history of Iran. I began with contemporary history, but I'm increasingly looking at the 19th and early 20th century history of the country and its approach to modernization in the West. I was born in Rome because my father was an ambassador under the Shah. This is obviously prior to 1979. So I actually spent a good deal of my time living in Europe as a young boy. Iran plays a much more central role in the idea of the West than people generally assume. It's been part of our Western culture for a far longer time than people acknowledge. Iran, or the Persians to be more precise, were there at the creation of the West. The idea of the West in many ways is defined against the Persians. It's partly because of the cultural baggage that we have, that our attitudes to Iran are so emotionally influenced. It's not a country we can look at objectively. We see it either as the font of all evil or some sort of romantic paradise, or we're completely ignorant of it. And this is a very strange situation to be in for a country that has played such a central role in our own identity as part of the West. So, for example, marathon races are now popular in most of the major cities certainly in the Western world. And yet few people are aware that the marathon race is born from a battle that took place between the Greeks and the Persians in the 5th century BC, in which the Persian Empire was defeated. And in the Western conception, of course, this idea of Greek democracy was saved. The name of the country is also quite interesting because people often get confused between the terms Persia and Iran. Iran is the name the inhabitants have called that country for many, many centuries. It's certainly been in usage in one sort of another since the early centuries of the first millennium AD, or the first millennium of the Common Era. It's been in and out of fashion in some respects, it's been defined in different ways, but nonetheless, the term Iran as a territorially limited state or a culture, if you will, has been used for a very, very long time. Now, when the Greeks first encountered the Iranians, they defined that empire by the province from where the ancient Persian kings emerged. And that province was the province of Parsa or Pars. And hence, they gave the name Persia and the Persian empire to that state. And of course, the Greeks handed that name down to the Romans and the term Persia is what Western countries, and certainly those in the Romance languages, have inherited from Latin. So that is where the term Persia comes from. And it's really been in widespread usage in the West, and certainly in Western languages, all through to the 20th century. And my understanding is that it was the Daily Telegraph that was the last paper in the UK to stop using the term Persia in 1979. Because then, of course, we had the Islamic Revolution, and the foundation of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the break, I think, was so great that this was as good a time as any to stop using the term Persia for the country. Although it has to be said there are merits in using the term Persia over Iran, certainly in Western languages, because as Churchill pointed out, it avoids the tendency of confusing Iraq and Iran. In Persia, if you look at the classical or traditional literature, is used much more widely, even though many authors who were traveling to Iran, particularly for trade, were well aware that the inhabitants called their country Iran, but they would use Persia because it's a more familiar term for their readers. Among the travelers that take note of this is the very famous Huguenot writer Sir John Chardin, who wrote in the 17th century, was residing in Isfahan as a merchant. His travels in Persia were extremely popular and sold very widely in the 18th century. And another very prominent writer in the 19th century was Sir John Malcolm, 
who was an ambassador initially from the East India Company. He wrote the first full-scale history of Iran or history of Persia in the English language. And he too makes it very clear when he's defining his terms that the inhabitants called the country Iran, but for the purposes of his readership, he'll stick to Persia. Malcolm's a very interesting writer because he's one of the first and only writers who actually took Iranian history on its own terms. There are two quite distinct narratives that run side by side. The Europeans tended to follow classical authors, the Bible, as sources for their history of the Persians. The Iranians began to look at a much more mythological inheritance about the history of their country. And while the Iranians have tended to emphasize their own narrative over the other, and in some cases clearly completely ignored the biblical narrative, which in historical terms was more accurate, they today have tended to adopt both recognizing one as superior to the other, obviously the history over the mythology, but nonetheless not eliminating the mythology. Now, from a historical point of view, and the one that we would be more familiar with, certainly in the West, you see three ancient dynasties in Iran that start with the Archimenids, a dynasty that rises in the province of Pars, Persia, if you will, in the 6th century BC, and is the one that is most familiar to Western writers because it's so central to this foundation myth of the West. It's the empire of Cyrus the Great, of Darius the Great, Xerxes. And this ancient empire, this first of the Persian empires, is eventually destroyed by Alexander the Great. Two subsequent dynasties emerge on the back of this Hellenic period. One is the Parthians, and the Parthians prove to be very, very strong rivals to the emergent Roman Empire, the Republican then Empire of Rome. And then following on from the Parthians, who lasted a good 500 years, you have the Sasanians, another quite distinctly Persian dynasty. They emanate from the same parts of the country as the Archimenids did. Both the Parthians and the Sasanians are staunch rivals of the Romans. And it's really because of the Parthians and the Sasanians and the threat they pose to Rome that the Persians are so central to Western literature and narratives and Roman narratives. If you look at these ancient dynasties that governed the territory we now know as Iran, they governed for just over a thousand years, from around the 6th century BC through to around the beginning of the 7th century AD or the Common Era. This means that this period in Iranian history has had an impact. It has cast a long shadow on what we understand to be Iranian culture, Iranian attitudes and Iranian perceptions. All the more so because in the 20th century, as people have looked back on their history, they've tended to emphasize this pre-Islamic period. I stress this because since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, there's been a tendency to read Iran through an Islamic lens as if somehow the country is defined principally by its religion. Whereas for many Iranians, they see religion as part of a broader identity, that their identity is shaped not only by Islam, which came in the 7th century AD or the Common Era, but also by the pre-Islamic inheritance, which was shaped by ideas of the pre-Islamic religion, Zoroastrianism, but also by what we could define as a secular culture, an aristocratic culture, a highly successful political, military, cultural state that had enormous cultural confidence.
It was this cultural confidence which meant that after the Arab Muslim conquest of the 7th century, this distinct state, this political culture survived. Not only did it survive, but many of the Arabs who came with extreme confidence of their own and their new, rather radical, even one might say in those days puritanical religion, adopted many of the ways of the Persians or the Iranians who they encountered. They saw in the Iranians a superior culture that they wanted to absorb, not eliminate. So Iran is one of the few countries that was subsumed in the Arab conquest of the 7th and 8th centuries that, for example, retained its own language. In retaining its own language, not only was it able to develop it, but it used the medium of Islam as a new political cultural force with a new alphabet, Arabic, to disseminate what had been an oral tradition to a far, far wider group of people. What you see is that the Iranians tend to absorb the Muslim conquest. They transformed Islam from an Arab religion into a universal religion. And Persian as a language, as a new language, became effectively the lingua franca of the Eastern Islamic world. During this period as well, the Iranians, I think, were aware that an age was disappearing. It was quite clear that this new religion was here to stay. So what you find is that the Iranians begin to write things down, to protect their culture, to protect the way in which things were done. This is done through the bureaucratic classes. If there's one element of continuity in the post-conquest world, it's this bureaucratic class. And the bureaucratic class is overwhelmingly Persian in its composition. They even go as far as to write the rules of the Arabic language. So the grammar of Arabic, as we know, it was written by Persian scribes who needed a rule book so they could understand this new language. They are the ones who form the backbone of the intellectual elite of this new state. <laughs> Iranians today, they take a great deal of pride in the intellectual achievements of the classical period in the Islamic world. One of the most prominent, of course, is Omar Khayyam. We know Omar Khayyam from his Rubaiyat, his collection of poetry, which was translated by Fitzgerald. It's not commonly held to be a very accurate translation, but nonetheless, it's a popular one, and it did much to disseminate and to popularize Omar Khayyam in the West. But in Iran, Omar Khayyam is much better known as a mathematician and astronomer. One of his most striking achievements was to be able to calculate the length of the solar year to a degree of accuracy that was not surpassed until the 20th century. And it's the solar year that the Iranians held on to. The Muslim calendar is based on a lunar year and the phases of the moon. But the Iranians held firm to their own solar calendar, which they'd inherited themselves from the Mesopotamians. So the Iranian year and their new year, which falls on March the 21st, is one of the strongest indications of the strength of their continued culture. You can tell a civilization from the fact that they have their own distinct calendar. The other way you can detect a distinct civilization is the fact that they have their own foundation myths. So while the Arabs and the Muslims brought with them their Quranic verses, a creation myth which starts from the prophet Adam, basically very Abrahamic, and looks at the series of prophets down to the prophet Muhammad, the Iranians retained an adherence to their own foundation and creation myths derived from a mythology that was taken from Zoroastrian ideas, Eastern Iranian ideas, and one that basically looked at the creation of the world through the first kingdom. And what you find with some historians of the early Islamic period is an attempt to reconcile these two traditions. 
These historians don't dismiss these Iranian mythologies or histories as they would have seen it. They seek to try and reconcile them with the Quranic tradition. And they actually bifurcate their histories. They talk about the histories of the prophets and kings. The prophets represent the Islamic lineage and the kings represent the Iranian lineage. And these two run parallel. One figure, of course, that gives the narrative of the kings absolute prominence is the 10th century poet Ferdowsi. Ferdowsi came from a class of individuals which could best be described as the landed gentry. These were individuals in eastern Iran in particular who were very closely attached and had a strong affection for the history and myths of Iran and were seen as people who would protect and disseminate it. He was tasked by a Turkic ruler at the time, Mahmud of Ghaznian, to compile and put into one large text, a poetic text as it happened, all the myths and traditions and histories of the Iranians that he could find. His book, which has come down to us as the Book of Kings, the Shahnameh, certainly the largest single collection of myths and history of the Iranians from the beginning of time, as they saw it, to the fall of the Sasanians to the Arabs in the 7th century AD, or Common Era. The interesting thing about the Shahnameh is that until recently it was largely regarded as a great achievement in world literature. It was not regarded as having much historical significance. But actually recent archaeological finds have confirmed that a good deal of what Ferdowsi says, particularly about the historical period, the Sasanian period, does have historical merit. He does talk about aristocrats in the Sasanian period that genuinely existed. Now, this text became extremely popular in the Eastern Iranian world. And by the Eastern Iranian world, I mean not only the Iranians themselves, but also many of the Turkic-speaking peoples of Central Asia, through Afghanistan and also into India. And it's really through India, of course, that the British themselves come into contact with it, and it becomes something they become more familiar with in terms of scholarship in the 18th century. What you find is that many of the names of the characters in this book are actually adopted by rulers, be they from Turkic origin or Iranian origin. And of course, we need to bear in mind that in the pre-modern period, this racial distinction did not really exist. Whether you were Turkic-speaking or Persian-speaking, it didn't really affect the way in which you viewed your Iranian inheritance. And it's important to make that distinction, that the Iranian worldview was a civilizational worldview, which was not defined by ethnicity. You were defined by your culture. I think this comes down very strongly even in the modern Iranian mentality, that what they have is not an ethnic state, they have a cultural state. And Ferdowsi, as one of a number of major poets of the classical period, in a sense, define that identity. Now, in addition to this pre-Islamic inheritance, and then this Islamic inheritance, you then get a third influence on Iranian culture and identity. And that is really what we would define as Turkic or Turco-Mongolian. Because one of the great eruptions, and I think eruption is probably the right word, into the Iranian world is the Mongol conquest of the 13th century. And the Mongol conquest comes hot on the tail of other Turkic migrations, I think it's better to call them migrations, that occur in the 11th and 12th centuries. One of the things that the Turkic migrations and the Mongol onslaught do is they change Iran from a country that has an agricultural base that is sedentary to one that is much more nomadic. The Mongols and the other Turkic tribes that come in in the 13th century begin to settle in the north 
pasture lands in the north, and they change the character of the country in a way that is quite distinct from the earlier period, in a way that even the Arab invasions did not change the nature of the country. Bear in mind that the number of peoples we're talking about is in many ways far greater during these migrations that are coming through from Central Asia. Interestingly, Iranian authors at the time, Iranian historians at the time, tended to view the Mongol invasions that were quite catastrophic for the Eastern Iranian world as just an injection of new blood, just as the Parthians were an injection of new blood after the Hellenic period, because they too came from Central Asia. They were Iranian peoples in Central Asia. Now these new Turkic peoples were just another branch of an Iranian family come to inject a bit of new blood into a rather decadent system. So this is the third layer that changes or modifies the Iranian world. The Mongols, of course, after about 100 years, are absorbed within the Iranian worldview. They're much, much more supportive and stronger promoters of the Shahnameh than any previous dynasty. In fact, our earliest examples of manuscripts of the Shahnameh are actually from the Mongol period. And there may be one or two earlier, but the most famous is really a Mongol, great Mongol Shahnameh that is a masterpiece of miniature and artwork. There is one historian who says that after the Arab invasions and the Arab Muslim invasions of the 7th century, Iran as an identifiable, distinct territory, political territory rather than culture, really comes into its own under the Mongols. It's the Mongols who disrupt the Muslim unity in the Muslim world. They settle on Iran as their base of operations. So those are the three layers, the pre-Islamic inheritance, the Islamic inheritance, and then the Turkic inheritance. I'll call it Turkic rather than Mongol because it's longer than the Mongols. It's just the Mongols are emblematic of it. The Muslim inheritance, of course, changes in a very, very distinct way in the 16th century with the rise of the Safavids as a new dynasty in the territory of what we now know as Iran. And really, it's with the Safavids from 1501 onwards that the modern state of Iran begins to take shape. What the Safavids do is they recreate the boundaries that we are familiar with in terms of the territory of Iran, but dramatically they impose the minority branch of Islam as the state religion. So Shiism from the 16th century becomes the official religion of Iran. Shiism is the result of a religious and political dispute that emerges after the death of the Prophet in the 7th century about who should succeed to the leadership of the community. The Shias believed that the leadership of the community should go through the son-in-law of the Prophet Ali and his descendants. They basically argue for a hereditary settlement, whereas the Sunnis argued for the leadership by election or by acclamation rather than hereditary principle. But it's interesting to see that even under the Safavids, who were a Shia dynasty, they still were able to govern parts of Afghanistan and Central Asia that were Sunni. Their adherence to Shiism was probably not as rigorous as some historians today would like us to believe. Now, the final layer comes after the fall of the Safavids, a very dramatic fall to the Afghans, or an Afghan tribe, I should say, with the emergence in the 18th and the 19th century of Europe. And the European challenge is the last great challenge and probably the most serious challenge to Iranian identity and culture. It is because, a bit like the Arabs in the Muslim world, the Europeans come with an ideology. 
an ideology of progress, modernization, civilization, which is quite different. The Iranians are used to absorbing others, being the culturally superior outfit. Here with the Europeans, you get something different. You get Europeans who come and try to teach the Iranians manners. And it's awkward. By the 18th century and the 19th century, with the growth in European power, with the lessons of the Enlightenment, with the development of things like rights and political developments and military developments, it's quite clear to many Iranians, as to many other non-Europeans, that the Europeans certainly have now become top dog. And the Europeans, by the end of the 19th century, are very keen to make this known. In the British case, it's quite interesting. The British actually have a much more nuanced relationship with the Persians because they see the Persians as another civilization. They don't see them as necessarily a country that needs to be colonized, for instance. They see this as a legitimate civilization and country. Now, during the 19th century, Iran becomes extremely weak. It had a turbulent 18th century. It emerges in the 19th century to stability, but emerges into a stable world that has two new dominant states on its borders, the Russian Empire to the north and the British Empire in India. And so it's never really given enough time to recover. But what's remarkable about Iran, and it's something that you see to this day, of course, is that they never, never, never lose their sense of cultural self-confidence. In the 19th century, it's fair to say Iran, as a military power, has reached the nadir of its fortunes. But it decides it's going to send a delegation to the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 as a victorious belligerent. Why does it come to the conclusion that it's one of the victors? It comes to this conclusion very simply because the Russian Empire has collapsed, is in turmoil through the Russian Revolution of 1917, and the Ottoman Empire, its traditional rival to the West, has collapsed. But Iran has survived. It is survived as a distinct state. So it goes to this peace conference in Paris with claims, territorial claims and other claims that it wishes to make against both the Ottomans and the Russians. It doesn't make any claims to the East, interestingly enough, because obviously the British Empire is still in existence and it doesn't feel bold enough to make claims in the East where it could. But it does say we would like all the lands up to the Oxus in Central Asia, most Caucasia back, plus bits of Anatolia, including most of the Kurds, the Kurds being seen as Iranian people. Interestingly enough, they do not ask for control of the Shia shrines in southern Iraq. They're not particularly interested. They like to have a say in their governance, but they don't particularly want to take them back. What they're interested in is the Iranian heartlands. Curzon, who is foreign secretary at the time, politely dismisses them and says to go away and think again because there's fat chance they're going to get all these territories back. But it was noted by British officials at the time that only the Iranians would be quite so confident as to come to a peace conference and make such extraordinary claims that would effectively have doubled the size of the country. And it's a good indication of that continued cultural sense of self-confidence, but also the way in which they understood themselves was distinctly Iranian and secular. It wasn't about an Islamic empire at all. Islam and religion is but one aspect of the multi-layered inheritance that is modern Iran. During the Pahlavi dynasty that governed Iran officially from 1925 through to the fall of the dynasty in 1979, was a greater emphasis on ancient Iran, on the pre-Islamic inheritance, on what they considered to be the period of real success in terms of Iranian political achievements. The first of the Pahlavis, Reza Shah, who ruled from 1925 to 41, before he was in fact deposed by the Soviets and the British during World War II, he actually emphasised the historical inheritance from the Shahnameh. For him, he wasn't really that interested in Cyrus and Darius. 
He was more interested in the mythology of the Shahnameh. And he promoted that because it also it was more familiar to ordinary Iranians. Ordinary Iranians had these stories told to them at bedtime when they were growing up. His son, who was the last Shah, Muhammad Reza Shah, who reigned from 41 to 79, decided to shift the emphasis away from the Shahnameh towards the cult of Cyrus the Great, to adopt a narrative of Iranian history that was essentially Greek, taken from Herodotus, from the Bible and others. And they re-adopted Cyrus as part of that narrative. Cyrus is an extremely positive figure in the Bible and the classical texts. The Shah became enamored with him. In 1971, he held this grand ceremony that divided opinion in Iran, celebrating two and a half thousand years of Persian monarchy. But this focus on the Persian monarchy, this focus on Cyrus the Great, was seen by many nationalists in Iran as an act of grotesque egotism. And what's very striking about the cult of Cyrus the Great that's emerged is it's been embellished by a huge amount of modern mythology. You now have this notion that the Cyrus Cylinder, for instance, that's held in the British Museum, found in the ruins of Babylon, is the first charter of human rights. So the last Shah moves in a direction which is seen as extremely secular, non-Islamic. In 1976, he changes the calendar of the country again. His father had instituted the solar calendar, complete with Zoroastrian month names as the official calendar in 1924. The last Shah decided this wasn't good enough and decided to date the origins of the calendar, not to the prophet of Islam, but to the reign of Cyrus the Great. This was a good indication that hubris was taking hold. And then, of course, in 1979, the Shah, who tragically in many ways, because he did many, many good things for the country, but sadly, political development was not one of them. And as a consequence of what one might call political hubris or imperial hubris, he was overthrown in a popular Islamic revolution, which drew on a whole range of different classes against them. Iran has experienced two great revolutions in the 20th century, one in 1906 and the other in 1979. The 1906 constitutional revolution, to my mind, marks the most significant political revolution of our period. It established a constitutional monarchy, a parliament, a separation of powers, modelled really on the British system of government. And many of the aspects of the political state that we see today emanate from that period. We still have a parliament, we still have the separation of powers, we still have this at least lip service to the notion of the rule of law. In 1979, you see the next great revolution and one that we consider to be more important because we're closer to it. And that is the Islamic Revolution. And the Islamic Revolution was really a coalition of different interests who fought to overthrow the monarchy and to establish in this case, not a constitutional monarchy, but a republic, an Islamic republic. It's an Islamic republic in the sense that it is drawn from an Islamic inheritance and there's a heavy Islamic element to it. But of course, it's a republic, and a republic is an entirely Western concept. There is no such concept of republicanism in Islam. The constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran, in its republican elements, is really drawn from the French Fifth Republic. But they add to it a layer of Islam. And this hybrid constitution has been the source of many problems in the Islamic Republic of Iran, because there's been this tussle between these two wings of the constitution, the republican orthodox government that we would be familiar with in the West, and then on top of that, this Islamic element, which sees the entire machinery of government supervised by a supreme leader. Now, this supreme leader is indirectly elected, but he's elected for life and has acquired in recent years, certainly, the characteristics of what some of its critics certainly have called an Islamic monarchy. So although it's not hereditary, 
it has a lot of the characteristics of the old autocratic monarchical system that you had in Iran. And some have even criticized it and said that unlike the monarchy that came post-1906, it's far more absolute because it has religious authority, not just secular authority. So the irony is that today's Islamic Republic, despite its difficult relations with the West, is probably more indebted to Western political theory in terms of its structures and the way in which its government works, certainly the Republican aspect of it, than any previous Iranian constitutional political settlement. The constitutional revolution of 1906 owed a lot to the British political system. The Islamic Republic and certainly the Republican elements in 1979 owe far more to a French tradition and perhaps even one might say, to an American tradition. This was something that was raised in an interview that the former president, Khatami, had done in 1998, where he drew very clear comparisons between an Iranian Republican experiment and that which has transpired in the United States, much to the shock of the Americans, it has to be said. <laughs> <laughs>